sing to the Savior with you, joy to hear your singing, hear your care for one another, prayers and leadership and the, the men that God has given to lead you and others who are starting initiatives. I was with uh, Todd a couple weeks ago on the 4th of July, and he was talking about some things that are in the works that they're thinking through planning. It was just so exciting to hear uh, the ways that the Lord is at work among you and encouraging to hear. Uh, as we are seeking to serve the Lord in Westminster, it's a joy to be near you, alongside of you, hearing all that the Lord is doing. So thank you for allowing me to, to come back. Uh, it's a joy to be with you again. If you would turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, the gospel according to Matthew. Let me get situated here. There we go. You don't want me to go long, so I'm going to set my clock to remind myself how long I've been going. Uh, when I was talking with uh, Mark about just different options for what to preach down here, uh, and he, he selected this passage, I thought, well, that's perfect because uh, when, we, when we looked at this passage during our Advent series up in Westminster, uh, I talked about how we tend to think of this passage and Luke 2 as sort of like Christmas decorations. You pull them out once a year, and you take a look at them, and they're, they're nostalgic, and they're fun, and then you put them back, and you don't think about them for the rest of the year. And so I talked about how that's not the way this is intended to be. This is part of God's Word intended to nourish our souls and strengthen our faith. And so I thought, well, great, we're doing it in July, and that, I don't even need to mention that, you know? And then I thought, well, no, you can't not mention that, because if you don't mention that, here's what people are going to think, great, the guy comes down from Westminster and gives us a leftover Christmas sermon, <laughs> you know, like a, you reach in the back of the pantry and grab that piece of Christmas candy that is still there, you know, that's a, that is not what this is, okay? I was excited because the truth in this passage is food for our souls all year. It is not just a Christmas passage. In fact, I looked this up this morning. I wasn't, I wasn't sure exactly. Christmas wasn't even celebrated at this point when Matthew wrote this. Uh, not until, I think, the middle of the, the fourth century did Christmas even begin to be an event. So Matthew's not writing a Christmas story. Matthew is telling us about our Savior. So July or December, this is food for our souls. So, would you read with me Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Would you pray with me? Father, you say that your word revives the soul, and that it is more to be desired than even much fine gold. But Lord, you know that we, in our, in our weakness, in our sinfulness, in our distraction, can fail to receive from your word what we ought to receive. Lord, and you know full well that I am not able to faithfully deliver what your word is intended to accomplish unless you help. Lord, you have to make the preaching of your word effective for your people. So please do that now as we look at this so familiar passage. Let our souls be strengthened. Let our love for you be deepened. Let our trust in what you have done for us be freshly firm. And let that produce joy, fresh joy in you, our Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me know if I need to do any, anything mic-wise. 
Although probably what I'll do is just do this and let you come up and do whatever. Because <laughs> I'll just make it worse. Uh, I, uh, I was thinking this week as I was preparing, uh, I was remembering a picture from one of the children's Bibles. I don't remember which one. Uh, that we had when I was a kid. And I actually looked at it this morning, and there's a million different versions of this same picture, but it was coming to mind all week when Adam and Eve are leaving the garden, and there's an angel or a light, however the picture depicts it, in the background. In the foreground, there's Adam, and he has his arm around Eve, and Eve has her, her face in her hands, and she's weeping. That most profound moment of grief, I think, in all of human history, aside from perhaps when the Savior died. The deepest moment of sadness that is the foundational moment of sadness and grief for all moments of sadness and grief when, as Milton captured in the title to his poem, paradise was lost. Can't get our minds around fully the tragedy of that moment. But we live, do we not, with the tragedy of that moment. When we hear across our news feeds, another shooting has taken place. Another missile has struck a civilian apartment building. Another leader, it seems, is not willing or able to lead with conviction and clear vision. We feel it more personally when we go into the doctor's appointment not knowing exactly what's going on, but coming away with something far worse than we imagined. Or when the prayer for good things, surely things that God would approve of, surely things that he wants us to have. Salvation of a close loved one. Longing for a child or a spouse. The, the desire for a career. I'm looking to be a millionaire. I just, I just want to use the gifts that I think God has given me. And those prayers just don't seem to go answered. Or even more Poignantly, more deeply, we feel that grief depicted in Mary leaving the garden. We feel that grief, do we not, when we battle with our own sin or when the sin of others affects us? When will it be that the curse of this world will end? When will it be? That we won't live, even if they don't directly confront us, when we won't live in a world where these things are possibilities anymore. When will it be that we are not cast out from the garden, but able to approach God freely, without fear, without doubt, without any sense of the reality of our sin in light of his holiness? When will that be? When, I love the way it's described, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, as if that was just sort of the normal afternoon routine. When will that be again? Well, it is to that longing that Matthew intends to speak. But for the readers in Matthew's day, there was a particular problem. 
because something I didn't appreciate when I looked at that picture as a kid is that even as Adam and Eve left the garden, there had already been a promise that went out. Tragic as that moment was, the promise had already gone forth in the same moment that God announced the curse. He said, I will send one who is going to reverse what has just happened. He's going to undo this tragedy. He is going to redeem my people from this curse. And so down throughout history, Adam and Eve hoped in that promise. The people of God hoped in that promise as God filled it out and clarified and added things to it. And so to the people in Matthew's day, they looked for when that one who would come, who would end this curse, who would restore us to where we were meant to be. But if they were familiar with all that God had said, it would seem that a man from Nazareth could not possibly be the answer. If they were familiar with all the different things that God had promised and, and provided to the prophets, then a man from Nazareth is a contradiction. He is an imposter. So Matthew, inspired by God, intends to answer that objection. How can it be that a man from Nazareth is the one God has promised. And so he begins in chapter 1 by, by tracing the descent of Jesus from the kingly line of David and emphasizing in particular the, the climactic place that Jesus occupies in that genealogy. And then he goes into five events, five sort of like a, in a play, five different scenes, if you will, five different acts from the events surrounding Jesus' birth, each calculated to demonstrate that Jesus, in fact, though he is from Nazareth, Jesus, in fact, does fulfill all that God has promised. First, in the visit of the angel to Joseph before Jesus' birth, and then in four scenes after Jesus' birth, which is what we'll consider this morning in chapter 2. And I think if we were to try to capture what it is that Matthew wants us to know, Matthew wants to demonstrate to us from this chapter, it would be this, Jesus is God's promised king who secures for us God's perfect kingdom. From the beginning, God has been promising, I am going to reverse this curse. I am going to restore you to a kingdom even, even better than the garden. From the beginning, he has been crafting this plan. From, from before time, this plan was in place. And from the beginning, he has been putting promises in place and hints in place and early echoes in place to prepare for the arrival of this moment. And Matthew says, yes, he's from Nazareth, but he fulfills all that God has said. Because he is God's perfect king, sent to secure for us God's perfect kingdom. So let us consider together first scene one, the king in Bethlehem. Matthew says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, don't skip over that setting because Bethlehem and kingship are the point of this scene. 
At that time, Matthew says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the king of the Jews? Now, I know we have all heard this around Christmas time usually, but the original word there is magi. Magi was sort of a technical term. There was an official term for a specific type of person that everybody would have been familiar with. Originally, they would have been court officials in Babylon. They would have practiced magic arts. And they would have been advisors to the king. But from a Jewish perspective, there's a, there's a negative connotation associated with magi because they were involved in astrology and magic. And so this isn't like what we tend to think, oh, here, here come these sort of Gandalf figures arriving on the scene, advising everyone. They understand what's going on. That, that's not what it is. The, these guys, in the kindness of God, whatever wrong practices they were involved in, have discerned something that's true. A king has been born. And so, of course, instinctively, rightly, they go to where the king lives, in Jerusalem. And they say, where's the king? We want to worship him. But they aren't like sort of these enlightened individuals. God has allowed them to see something. And Matthew's telling us this story because he wants to highlight a particular truth about Jesus. But this question, as they come in and they ask, sets off a serious reaction in the court of Herod and in Jerusalem. Herod was a hated king. He was not a full Jew. He had not descended from what was viewed as the legitimate line of kings. He had been sort of through wheeling and dealing and and personal relationships appointed as king by Rome. And so he was, on the one hand, very vulnerable. On the other hand, because of that vulnerability, he was cruel and he was feared. He had killed off multiple members of his family to protect his own throne And so it's not surprising when these men arrive inquiring about a king that his unscrupulous mind, the wheels begin to turn. And so he goes and he asks the scribes, wait, what what was the prophecy? Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they tell him, in Bethlehem. Because this is what was written. You, Bethlehem, are not the least. From you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod hears that and he says, okay, that is a threat. That's something that has to be dealt with right away. So he goes back to the wise men. He says, now tell me, when was it that the star appeared? And with those two pieces of information, he begins to set his plot in motion. Because he tells them, okay, go Find the king and then let me know so I can come and worship him too. And we don't know for sure, but it would appear that the Magi don't know any better and they think, great, we'll we'll go and tell him, we'll find him and then we'll come and tell him so he can worship too. He's just as excited about this as we are. But he's got a plot in mind, which is what Matthew will get to in scene three. But for now, it's important to follow these magi. We'll come back to Herod. But Matthew says, look what happens with these magi. They go, and once again, the star leads them. And when they see the star, and when they see the place where the child was born, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That, in the original, is four words. Rejoiced, joy, great, greatly. Matthew wants to emphasize something here. These guys are ecstatic. In contrast to Herod, whose plot starts, and he's already planning what he's going to do to stop this king, these guys are excited to see this king. 
though they don't know what even Herod knows. They don't know, apparently, the prophecies, God's promises about Bethlehem, a king and a shepherd. God had promised a another king and another shepherd who would come from Bethlehem. David, the shepherd boy, had come from Bethlehem. God had appointed him as king, and he had been the king over the golden era of the people of Israel. The man after God's own heart. The man through whom God spoke and pronounced blessing and promised that there would be a son from his line on the throne forever. And so for the people of Israel who went through corrupt king after restoration king who wasn't quite perfect, after another corrupt king, after another corrupt king, after another corrupt king, for the people of Israel who seared in their memory was the exile because they had rebelled against God, and one of, the, one of the buzzwords throughout the prophets speaking into that time was, the shepherds have failed. The shepherds have led my people astray. And so they looked back, like we look back at some of our favorite presidents, and said, someday there will be a son of David. Someday there will be a perfect shepherd king, and we will not fall away from the Lord again. And we will, we will realize what it is we are supposed to be. This kingdom that we long for will be here when that shepherd king comes. These magi don't know all of that. But Matthew tells us this story because his readers do. And he wants to show, do you see? Do you see God is keeping his promise? These men, they don't know why, but they rejoice exceedingly with great joy because this is an exceedingly, greatly joyful moment. God is keeping his promise to send the shepherd king. As he said from the beginning, so he is doing now the perfect king. The king that David wasn't. He wasn't perfect. The perfect king has come just as God promised. Which leads us to scene two. The sun in Egypt. After the wise men depart, and again it appears that they believed Herod because the angel has to warn them not to go back to Herod. But after they depart, then an angel appears to Joseph. And there's urgency in his voice. It's the middle of the night. Get up. Take the, the child and his mother and go to Egypt and stay there because there's someone who wants to kill. Herod wants to kill this child. Again, we should hear echoes there of something in the Old Testament, of another ruler of God's people, another one through whom God was going to work rescue for his people who was almost murdered. As a child, Moses had been divinely rescued from a wicked plot. And so Jesus is also divinely rescued. But Matthew draws our attention to this prophecy. Then was fulfilled, this was to fulfill, I'm sorry, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, 
if you go back and look at that prophecy, you'll be a little bit confused because it's pretty obvious that it's talking about the Exodus. It's talking about when God called Israel out of Egypt. It doesn't appear to be talking about a future son. So why does Matthew say, well, then, when Jesus was sent down into Egypt, eventually to be called out of Egypt, then that prophecy was fulfilled? Well, it's important to understand that when Matthew says fulfilled, he doesn't just mean, well, there was something that was predicted that then happened. That's the most obvious meaning of fulfilled, right? The, the previous one was like that. A king will be born in Bethlehem. A king is born in Bethlehem. But that's not the only thing Matthew means when he talks about fulfilled. He can also mean something that was established as a pattern in the previous workings of God with his people. Or he can mean a, a sort of theme that God set up that is, was pointing to a future moment. Things that happened in the past that were significant in their own way, that were God working his saving promises, his saving faithfulness with his people in their own time, but their, their greater significance was that they pointed forward to what, what God was going to do in and through Jesus. And so Matthew discerns when God spoke of calling Israel out of Egypt, when God rescued his people Israel out of Egypt, that was a real and a significant moment of rescue. But it was pointing forward. It was a pre-echo of the significant moment of rescue. And so Matthew says, do you see, in calling Jesus out of Egypt, God is working what he has always promised to work. He's bringing about the plan of salvation that he has always been preparing his people for. Ever since the garden, ever since he said to Mary, there will come forward an offspring who will crush the serpent. Since then, God has been working this plan, and Matthew says it's being fulfilled. Jesus is going down to Egypt because God's going to call him up out of Egypt. The same faithful God who rescued his people from literal slavery and established them as his people, he's going to rescue his people from spiritual slavery through this deliverer who was delivered from murder as a baby. God's going to do it again and in the most significant way, which he's been preparing for and promising all along. So then, to scene three. The mourner in Ramah. While Joseph and Mary are in, and the baby are safely protected in Egypt, Herod carries forward his plan. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Again, one of those passages that we are familiar with. But just pause to consider that moment. Recently hit our news, children being killed in their school classrooms. All the baby boys, two years and under, in this town. Herod's soldiers ride in, destroy them, destroy lives around them, and ride out. Why? Because this man will not have a rival to his throne. 
weeping of this fallen world is poignant in this scene. Such things have been since the beginning. They ought not to be. In order to understand why Matthew would tell this story, why doesn't he just go from Egypt to coming out of Egypt? Why does he tell this story? Well, again, he's demonstrating that God is keeping his promise and he's keeping it in Jesus. And so he points to this passage from the book of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The city of Ramah was about six miles north of Jerusalem. And so in Jeremiah's day, as the people of God were being exiled, sent out of the promised land, after military defeat, after death and carnage and siege and starvation, as they're being sent out, Ramah was a a sort of stopping point along the way. And so This is speaking of a sort of poetic reference to the grief of the people of God who have sinned against God, rebelled against God, are experiencing God's judgment. And so children are dying, mothers and fathers are dying, grandparents are dying, and they're being sent out from the promised land. And so poetically speaking of Rachel weeping over the people of Israel. It's a reference to this time of exile and experiencing God's judgment. But if you look at Jeremiah 31, you will see that aside from this verse, the rest of that chapter is good news. The rest of that chapter is God saying, weep no more because I am going to reverse this exile. I am going to bring you back to this land. And so it would appear that Matthew, knowing his readers, would know that context, wants to reference that whole thing. Yes, there is a tragedy happening as has happened since the beginning of time because of the reality of human sin, but God is at work reversing it. God is bringing it to an end. The promise to the exiles in Jeremiah's day was just a pre-echo of what he is doing now in the life, the birth what will soon be the ministry and then the death of Jesus Christ. It's important to think for a second about that context back in Jeremiah. God is announcing judgment, just judgment, because his people have rebelled against him. The tragedy that they're experiencing, the real grief that they are experiencing is the result of their sin. Again and again, God warned his people and pleaded with them to repent and to turn back, and they would not, and so exile came. And even then, God is saying, I see the weeping. It's there because of your sin, but I see it, and I'm going to reverse it. All the tragedy that you're experiencing is my judgment, and yet... I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. It's not just a sort of helpless God on the sidelines saying, this is really bad, but I promise I'm going to fix it. 
It is God the judge at the same time proclaiming, I am going to restore you. Just as he said to Mary, there will be death, there will be pain, there will be struggle, and I am going to send an offspring who will reverse it all. The, The compassion of God, not merely to know of suffering, not merely to know of the realities of this fallen world, but to to be able to, at the same time, be just, to impose judgment, and yet to weep over the results of that judgment. He weeps over his people as they rebel against him. He weeps over them as he sends them into exile. Friends, he has wept over this fallen world from the moment he pronounced the curse even as he has been promising and carrying forward the reversal of the curse. He has looked forward to his perfect kingdom, weeping over this fallen kingdom. Knowing more deeply than we ever can in our corrupt hearts, just how broken, how painfully broken this world is. He feels and sees and knows it better than we do. He's not oblivious to suffering. He's not oblivious to the pain of the consequences of sin. And from the beginning, he has been promising, I'm going to fix it. I've got a new kingdom. I've got a perfect kingdom that I'm going to bring you into. He is the chief mourner even as he is the faithful comforter and the sure rescuer. So God sees, and I don't want us to misunderstand that there's no suggestion here that there was directly anyone's sin involved other than Herod's. It's just an echo of what happened in Jeremiah. But Matthew references it because he wants us to see the God who promised it restoration from exile is working restoration from the curse so now to scene four the man from Nazareth this really seems to be the most immediate problem that Matthew is addressing Do you remember in the book of John, Nathaniel's response when he's told that there's a man from Nazareth that we think is the Messiah? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I like driving, and so I, I find myself in sort of obscure parts of the world, wherever I live, just go for a drive and there are some towns out there in no matter where you live, doesn't matter where you live. And I, I don't know anything about the people there, but you drive through those towns and just by appearance, you think, I'm not sure what, I don't know if anybody lives here. I'm not sure if anybody lives here. I'm not sure if anything good happens here because I would just like to get through this town as quick as I can. I, <laughs> one time I used to live in Texas and uh, West Texas is the worst place in the world. 
It just is. I love Texas. I really do. I loved living there. But West Texas was designed, I think, to give us oil, and that's what it's there for. I don't think God intended us to enjoy driving through West Texas. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just not an attractive place to drive through. I used to, I used to live here before that, and we used to make fun of Kansas because driving through Kansas, there's not a lot of topography or things to look at. I love Kansas now because it's not West Texas. West Texas is, it, really, it, West Texas is there for oil wells, and I am grateful for oil wells, but I don't want to look at them. I want to receive the product and not look at it. But we drove through this little town in West Texas, and I don't know if this hotel was still open or not, but there was a hotel that had, uh, this was 2008, 2007, it had a sign that said, full boldness, excited advertisement, television and air conditioning in every room. It was like, awesome, that's great. I have never been in a hotel that didn't have both of those things. So, so anyway, there are, there are places in the world that I understand, um, and I'm sure people from those places would say the same thing about me, but I understand Nathaniel's snobbish response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the sense. And Matthew's trying to tell people the Savior came from Nazareth. People are going, I don't think so. I don't think that's where the Savior comes from. In fact, there's a prophecy that says he's coming from Bethlehem. And you want to tell us that this man named Jesus from Nazareth is the Savior? I don't think that's possible. And so Matthew says, let me, let me take you by the hand. Let me show you how this happened. He was born, descended from David. Before his birth, an angel appeared and said, the child to be born will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He was, in fact, born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophecy, the ruler will come from Bethlehem. He did go down into Egypt in fulfillment of what God had prepared and promised ahead of time, I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. While he was there, once again, an echo of the tragedy of this world that he had come to reverse. And now, he winds up in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, not because he was born there, because that would have contradicted the prophecy, but because God is sovereignly guiding and protecting him from another evil king, Archelaus, the son of Herod. God is the one who sovereignly ordained this remarkable sequence of events so that this baby boy descended from the line of David could end up in Nazareth. So to those who would object, nothing good can come from Nazareth. Matthew says, God worked step by step to put his son in Nazareth. Don't let that be a hindrance. But it's not just that Matthew wants to overcome an objection. It's not just that he wants to prove something. Commentators have various different ideas of what this prophecy is that Matthew references. 
because there's no prophecy in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. In fact, the town of Nazareth was not founded until after everything in the Old Testament was written. There's nothing in the Old Testament about that. And so there's different questions as to maybe there's a word play in the original language that he's referencing. I think the most sure answer and the, and the, the strongest consensus seems to be, though he might mean other things as well, he at least means this. Nazareth is this town that's viewed as middle of nowhere, nothing good can come from it. And there is a theme that is in all of God's promises. There is a theme in the Old Testament that the Messiah who would come would not, be, would not come with fanfare, would not come recognized. No, in fact, he would be despised and rejected. Nazareth was synonymous with despised and rejected. But this, Matthew says, is exactly what God said. He is going to send one who will not be recognized, who will not be seen, who will be hated, who will be opposed, and eventually he will be crushed by God himself. Because God is not standing off looking at the tragedy of this world and saying, I hope you fix yourselves. He is saying, not only do I promise to fix it, I am going to send my own son. My own son is going to come into this broken, destroyed, tragic world. He's going to set aside his glory. He's going to set aside paradise, of which the garden was simply a reflection. He's going to take on flesh. He's going to look like any other man. But in him, I am keeping my promise for the perfect king who's going to rescue this world. The people of Israel could not rescue this world. They failed again and again and again. David failed. Moses failed. Prophet after prophet, king after king were not the savior. But God has now sent one, God himself, God the Son, to be the perfect king who will not fail. To be the perfect son who will obey the father perfectly. We'll see that in the next chapter. To be the perfect, the perfect prophet who will speak truly of God. To be the one to reverse this curse. God is keeping the promise that he has made all along because Jesus is this promised king who's bringing God's people into the perfect kingdom. My friends, we live in a relatively comfortable and relatively easy place in history. It's hard for us to remember the truth of Mary going out of the garden 
with her face in her hands. But that's the world we live in. We ought not let all the good gifts of God, and they are good, they're not to be frowned upon, distract us from the fundamental longing of this world. The fundamental longing to be able to approach God without any sense of hesitation. The fundamental longing to be free from sin and death and tears because of our rebellion against God. The fundamental longing to be free from experiencing the sin of others against us. The fundamental longing to be free from whether it has to do with our own sin or anyone else's sin or it's just the reality of a fallen world to be free from suffering. I know that there are those here who have suffered, who are suffering. Moments of suffering hit us especially hard, I think, because we live in such a comfortable time and place in history. But friends, moments of suffering bring us face to face with the reality of this world, the reality of what has been lost. And they ought to bring us in a sweet way, in a poignant way, face to face with the hope of a Savior who says, I am fixing it. I have come to fix it. God has promised from the beginning a perfect kingdom, and he sent his son to bring it about. Perfectly from the beginning, keeping all his promises. The son who kept all of God's commands so that we could be counted righteous. The son received in our place on the cross the righteous curse so that we could be forgiven. The son who reigns now, once and forever, the perfect king, never to be removed from his throne, never to fail, never to fall short because once and for all he has accomplished what God promised, what God sent him to do. The perfect kingdom, my friends, has already come. It is in the process of coming. We live now in it. We look forward to its full fulfillment. Why? Because the perfect king came. We live in a sad world, but we live with the joy of a kingdom to come because we have the perfect king that God promised. And he kept that promise. So let us live aware of the tragedy of this world, but let us live in hope because our promised king has secured our place in the perfect kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you fulfilled all that God promised. Thank you that you came to be a 
a baby boy not recognized by all as king, a baby boy under the threat of murder, an unknown, obscure, doubted man from a little town called Nazareth. Thank you that you see all the suffering of this world and you came into it in order to rescue us. Lord, let us live in the joy and the hope of what you have done for us. Let us live sure of the promises of your kingdom. Let us live looking to you, trusting you, whatever grievous things you may allow us to experience. Lord Jesus, you are to be so help us to trust you and to rejoice in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Sweet.